Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Amy Edwards about Are We Rich Yet? The Rise of Mass Investment Culture in Contemporary Britain. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Thanks for joining us. This uh, is a fabulous book. It's incredibly interesting. Uh, Like all really good history books, it's got an incredibly important sort of contemporary uh, relevance, uh, I think. And it also tells a, a sort of genuinely fascinating story, um, not just about the 1980s, but has, you know, kind of several big ideas in it. And I guess the place to start really is with the title. Um, I, I'm sort of interested in, in what you kind of mean by the title, both in terms um, of what mass investment culture is, but also why you were interested in writing about, um, I guess, this kind of social, cultural, economic phenomenon. Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, to start with the first point, so mass investment culture is really about the ways that investing and stock markets and shares have in one way or another become much more part of everyday life. Um, In Britain, in my case, anyway, that's what I was looking at. So um, not only the number of people investing in shares and having an investment in the stock market, but just their visibility in society around us and the role of financial institutions in our lives in a way that, in fact, it's become quite difficult to imagine one's life without um, without a bank or uh, an investment fund or a pension fund or things like that. So it's really about this kind of spreading of finance through all sorts of different areas of life um, across the late 20th century. Um, and you're going to have to forgive me. I forgot what the second part of the question was. And what got you interested in writing about this? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, thanks. So, I mean, there's a much longer version of this, but I suppose the actual start point for me was I was really interested in political marketing and the way that political parties um, use cultural touchstones to help people connect big, complicated economic ideas or political ideas to quite simple and emotive messaging. And I started looking at that, um, particularly in relation to the Conservative Party, because Margaret Thatcher was fairly famous for getting Saatchi and Saatchi, um, the advertising company, to run her 
political marketing campaigns. And as part of that, I got into looking at how she marketed the concept of privatization to get people to buy shares, um, often for the very first time. And that was really my starting point. And once I got into that, I suddenly just became really interested in, well, how is it that suddenly something that in many ways seems quite boring and disconnected from people's lives in many ways actually becomes a real cultural moment in the 1980s and people are talking about shares as a kind of cool fun thing it's a news story it's on tv that kind of thing yeah i i, I guess what you're describing there is this idea of sort of financialization and, and you mentioned you know stocks and shares banks investment funds becoming part of people's sort of everyday lives, you know, and, and sort of embedded in the cultural fabric of, of how we live life in, in contemporary Britain. And part of the book is saying, like, it wasn't always like that. But the other thing is, it, it talks about these two ideas about financialization needing consumerism and a particular kind of subjectivity to, to work. And I wonder if you could introduce those uh, two ideas, financial consumerism and financialized subjectivities, because they sound, uh, I guess, sort of, you know, quite tricky, quite complex, but they're really central to the story the book is trying to tell. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, I think um, their their names are, sound more complicated than they are. So um, hopefully uh, a quick explanation will do. Um, so financial consumerism is really just the idea that finance, um, I would argue, particularly across the late 20th century, becomes viewed as and understood by people as a form of consumption. So much more like going into the process that you would go through, going into a shop, selecting a product, um, and that product has all sorts of maybe cultural meanings to you, and that finance moves away from being something a bit more technical and more about kind of asset management and into, for some people, a kind of a form of shopping. And there's a whole kind of emotional, cultural thing that comes along with having certain kinds of shares or certain kinds of financial products, and you just pop into your bank and sort out what you're going to buy um, in terms of your pension or your mortgage. I've just been doing um, some <laughs> some financial shopping myself, actually, with, with credit cards and things, and that's a bit of what it feels like to me. So, um, so that's kind of financial consumerism. And then on the other side, financialized subjectivities is really about the way that with this process of financialization and with ideas about stock markets and shares and finance and financial institutions, the logic of financial markets becoming so much more embedded in society, that actually starts to change how people understand themselves and think about themselves and um, affects the way that we move in the world as well. So I have these ideas of, say, investment-oriented subjects, so someone for whom ideas about investment shape not only how they think about investing, actually, but how they think about other areas of their life. So we can think about it in the way that we use the language of the market in everyday life, like, oh, I don't want to invest my time in that, or like, oh, I've been hanging around with this guy, but it's not been really paying any dividends. Um, So this kind of even the language of something quite technical and that we would normally associate with the market becoming part of our everyday language and the way we think about ourselves and how we spend our time and our resources in different ways. What's quite interesting at the start of the book is, is you say, on the one hand, this is, you know, a new phenomenon that needs to be analysed. But at the same time, you, you talk in quite detail and, and at some length about the way that, you know, we, we can see earlier eras in terms of uh, investment practice and, and the kind of financial practice of British society. And, and I guess to try and distill that, you know, where are we 
almost kind of 200 year history down to, to a single question is, is tricky. But I, I wonder whether you could just sort of set the scene for the 1980s by talking um, about the kind of history of popular investments in the UK. You, you talk about sort of pre World War One, the interwar years, post World War Two. What's the sort of uh, the lead in to, to, to the story of the 1980s? Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, in some ways, uh, the history of financialization and mass investment culture, sorry, um, is kind of is at least 100 years old by the time we get to the 1980s. Um, so I think there are these moments. And this is what why I was interested in that longer history. I think what you can start to identify is a pattern of conditions at different times that come together that allow a moment of expansion in, in who is involved in share ownership and um, how many people. So the 1980s is the moment that I'm looking at, this really big boom in that in the 1980s, and I would argue that that is quite an unprecedented moment of expansion, but there are earlier examples of that. So like you say, there's a moment before World War I, uh, particularly in the kind of late 1800s, after the railway speculation of the mid-1800s, you start to see the emergence of a financial press um, I won't talk too much about it, but Alex Prida has a great um, book and some articles about this, which are really, really interesting. Um, and then I think the other main moment for me, um, it goes a bit quiet in the interwar years. Um, there's a stock market crash, as we know. Um, the stock market was closed during uh, during the war, which made that quite difficult. Um there are, there are some things that happen there, but the other main moment I would argue is after World War II in the 1950s, late 1950s and 1960s, as you start to see uh, mass affluence. And the more that people have a bit of extra money at the end of the month, um, some disposable income, yes, there are all sorts of goods companies that are looking to get them to spend that money on a car or a TV, but also banks and um, other companies are aware that hey, if the people have got a bit of extra money at the end of the month, maybe that's something that we might be interested in helping them to spend or save or invest in different ways. Um, and again, you see these kind of parallel processes of an expanding financial press, of more access to information about the market, of more different ways for people in, to invest that are a bit more user-friendly. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of longer history. So that then by the time you get to the 1980s and Margaret Thatcher and privatization and the deregulation of the stock market, there's actually already quite a well-embedded set of kind of cultural norms around investing that they're able to lean on as part of their intent to expand share ownership. Yeah, I mean, you know, as it's probably familiar to, to uh, listeners, the 80s sees this massive kind of moment of uh, transformation for not just financial services, but as, as you talk about in the book, a variety of different um, kind of parts of, of British life and British society. One thing I was struck by, though, quite early on in the book, you, you sort of make the argument that even as we're seeing major changes, particularly in terms of deregulation uh, of particular bits of the financial system, there's still quite kind of old, almost sort of like neo-Victorian uh, mm. tropes around, uh, I guess, who is uh, involved in finance, who is, you know, uh, kind of allowed to operate legitimately, and who is considered a bit of a sort of risk-taking uh, cowboy, really. And and you, you've got different um, occupations, different uh, sort of examples. But I'm interested in how, I guess, kind of deregulation and people working in finance were kind of culturally uh, constructed, you know, as both sort of 
legitimate and actually as a bit, you know, sort of chances, cowboys, that kind of thing. Yeah, like you say, so the the 1980s, a bit like I was just talking about, these are the moments where changes afoot and things are happening to do with who can access shares. They create these moments of anxiety um, as access to the market is moving amongst different people. Um, and often this ends up being expressed in quite class terms. Um, so there's this long-standing norm of the kind of gentlemanly capitalist, the gentlemanly financier, who in some ways is an idea... Uh, an ideal from across the 20th century of someone who's investing sensibly, who's um, knowledgeable about the companies they invest in, they're well financed. And the moment that this starts to expand, then there, the response to that is often to um, delegitimize other kinds of financial actors or other people. So sometimes that is working class people who may be investing for the first time and they're quite often constructed as likely to be duped um, or entirely irresponsible that actually working class people are much more familiar with gambling. All they'll do is speculate their money away and it's not good for anyone. But these kinds of narratives are also applied to other types of financial actors. So if you move outside of the main London Stock Exchange and the kind of brokers that are part of the London Stock Exchange are these groups like licensed dealers, for example. And they're essentially people who are working outside of the regulatory environment of the London Stock Exchange in the late 20th century. And they are dealing with what we might call penny shares. Um, These are shares in unlisted companies, really small companies, startups that aren't big enough to be on the London Stock Exchange. They're really high risk. Um, But licensed dealers are uh, are dealing in these shares and are often targeting speculators and small investors. And they're really understood and constructed in the press and by the London Stock Exchange as these kind of cowboys who are like completely out in the Wild West doing unspeakable things and like duping people out of their money. Um, So yeah, there's these really kind of interesting different ways that different types of investing and different people investing are constructed or understood in really quite different ways. I mean, much later in the book, you come across the kind of like avatar of the 1980s, the, the, the yuppie. I'm interested to kind of extend um, that that analysis really about why this, um, what would we even call them, you know, cultural tropes, set of individuals, um, social phenomenon, why this group is so sort of uh, culturally significant, both from the sorts of products they bought, you know, you talk about filofaxes in in the book and, you know, they were um, sort of really, you know, kind of famous symbols of a transformation of both um, working practices of capitalism um, and of you know sort of consumer culture as well, but also I think it taps into something um, much more general about both I suppose the kind of the fears, but also the um, positive points of uh, financialization. So yeah, who, who are the yuppies? Why do they matter? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I think they matter. I have I have a whole chapter about them, so I'm very happy to talk about them. Um, I suppose that like you say yuppies in some ways become, in many ways, yuppies are no one. Yuppies are somewhere between um, kind of demographics and emerging cultural norms and changing practices, uh, new types of jobs emerging. Um, 
So there's no one person who's a yuppie. I talk about yuppies a lot as specifically a kind of subsection of the yuppie character of the 1980s, which is um, city traders as yuppies. But um, as one of my colleagues um, spent some time arguing with me, um, his pitch was that actually estate agents were the ultimate yuppie rather than traders. But I'll stick with traders for now. But they absolutely become this kind of reservoir, as you say, for both... um, the imaginative possibilities of the free market and of capitalism and of finance and upward social mobility and meritocracy as it's kind of circulating through political discourse and as society is becoming more free market um, under the changes of Thatcherism, but also the reservoirs, uh, reservoir for anxieties about that. So within the city, there becomes this tension between yuppies and the old city gentlemen and the different values that they represent um, and that yuppies are this much more kind of workaholic masculinity. Um, and, and yuppies weren't only men, but in the city they were often constructed um, or understood as the young kind of um, East End Barrow Boy traders of the stock market who were coming in with next to no qualifications, making millions in a matter of weeks, and then the kind of new money not knowing how to spend it. So they're really important in that sense and they're really useful to us as historians I think for understanding some of the cultural shifts that are going on but they're also really important at the time because they end up becoming a bit of a cultural icon which means that as you say all this um all the fashions and the accessories of the city start to become kind of cool and popular and this is where kind of mobile phones and pinstripe suits and uh, pinstripe suits for example and the kind of the all the things that people in the city would have been wearing are suddenly on um, runways at New York Fashion Week. Um, and Filofaxes, as you say, which is actually just a way of organising your contacts and your data or like your information about what investments you're making becomes like the must-have accessory and celebrities are um, carrying them around. So, yeah, yuppies become this sort of bridge between the world of high finance and the world of like popular culture um, and celebrity as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I suppose those two examples of, you know, the sort of moments of deregulation and then the, the, the sort of the cultural trope of the UOP are probably what people either remember or are kind of most aware of. But actually the book, um, you know, does a lot of drilling down into the everyday kind of practices, the everyday lives of uh, increasingly financializing Britain um, during the period. And, and one example I mean, there, there are lots of, of different examples in, in, in the books, but what, one example was this idea of you could just go shopping and buy shares. Um, the, the idea of, of an investor actually becoming, I guess, a consumer, a shopper. Um, and you've got examples of like shops that literally sold shares in ways that, um, you know, this consumer activity is a really different idea to the idea of investing or being, you know, uh, a shareholder in a company and having, you know, I don't know, fiduciary responsibilities or or, or whatever. And I'm fascinated um, by that uh, phenomenon, really, both in terms of like shops 
actually selling shares, but but also the idea of investors could be consumers. Yeah, and this comes back to um, earlier when I was describing financial consumerism, and this is really what is at the heart of it. And I would argue that financial consumerism is a really key feature that differentiates um, what's going on in the 1980s from some of those earlier periods of expansion in um, share ownership. And I suppose that, as you point out, some of this is because there's deregulation going on, because there's privatization, because there is a growing public interest in owning shares in different ways, companies, whether that's banks um, or in... um, I can't think of another single financial institution. There you go, banks, building societies, my goodness. Um, They come to understand there's money to be made and they're trying to think of ways of how do we reach and talk to and offer services for a very different type of customer that perhaps we haven't dealt with or type of customer that we've dealt with, but previously they've been more having kind of checking accounts and a savings account, but now we're interested in investing So they start to use the norms that they associate with that kind of regular customer. They're used to retail environments. They're used to being on their high street. They're not used to going into a kind of wood paneled office um, somewhere in London and enlisting the services of a stockbroker. So they start basically using the norms of shopping to make types of investing and their products more accessible to people. So as you say, uh, one of the examples I use in the book is um, that Quilter Goodison, who is a stockbroker, um, they set up a share shop. They have an arrangement with Debenhams and they set up a counter in Debenhams so that people who are in Debenhams anyway, buying some perfume, maybe buying some underwear, I don't know what it is they're buying in Debenhams, but they can walk up to a counter next to the perfume counter where there will be some men, um, stockbrokers, again, not always men, but the sources suggest largely men um, who are like, good afternoon, madam, can I interest you in buying some shares in British Gas today? Um, so it really places investing in directly in those spaces that we would normally assume, um, associate with uh, consumption and everyday consumption. You mentioned uh, gender quite a few times, um, and you know, particularly the construction of yuppies as men, uh, you know, stockbrokers, people working in financial institutions in, uh, as men. Towards the end of the book, you look at another example of sort of everyday practice: uh, the idea of um, investment clubs. Um, and gender really kind of comes in really, really strongly. Both, I think, as an alternative to help us rethink um, the idea of the financialized. Uh, consumer, the financialized citizen to say, well, actually women were involved as well. You know, they weren't just, as you say, you know, kind of passive consumers who might be going into share shops. But at the same time, this is a really sort of like, I, as if I've understood it correctly, everyday activity, like being in a book club or something like that, you know, being part of, uh, I don't know, a parish council, you know, you know, these kind of quite traditional British uh, tropes. So what's the story of um, investment clubs in the 80s? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I was really interested in in investment clubs. Um, as you say, the investment clubs are essentially small groups, normally of friends, neighbours, work colleagues who get together and decide to pool their money together um, 
and make investments together. And the clubs tend to meet uh, kind of regularly, whether that's fortnightly, monthly. They're part social club, part a way to kind of get together with your friends. Um, a lot of the clubs meet at pubs um, or in people's houses, um, at local village halls. And then they collectively talk about investing and what they might invest in if they're going to change what they've invested in, make new investments and put more money into the pot. Um, and then they do that as a, as a kind of group activity. And I think they're really interesting because on the one hand, as you say, they really reflect this idea, some of the anxieties that come for people with um, this new kind of culture of investment and a slight expectation that people might be investing because for a lot of people, they have no idea what that looks like. I mean, I say a lot of people, I don't really know what that looks like, despite researching it. Um, so it's sometimes it's about that. It's also about the cost prohibitiveness, actually, of investing. And that it's only by pooling their money together that people who normally wouldn't be able to access or afford to directly invest in, you know, a couple of different companies, find a way to do that. And the reason why gender becomes quite important in there is because whilst, as I was saying earlier, high finance becomes in some ways kind of hyper-masculine, so in the city, this idea of the kind of um, uber-masculine yuppie trader who's competing on the stock exchange floor, making ridiculous um, investments and gambling it all, at the lower at the lower end in kind of everyday finance, that is being understood and constructed in a much more feminine way, partly because it's becoming much more associated with what is a very traditionally feminine sphere of consumption. But also, again, companies and banks and building societies are aware that there's a major pool of people out there who could be really good um, customers, and that's women. So investment clubs are a space where people who are normally seen as slightly outside of finance club together so you see a lot of women only investment clubs um where women are coming together to talk about finance and to they they're also spaces where they're starting to explore their own financial agency and their economic agency in ways that are compatible with the wider changes towards a much more free market society so they they kind of have these weird threads of like second wave feminism in them but in a very kind of explicitly capitalist way which is i think quite interesting there's lots more detail we, we could sort of drill down into in the book, but I, I'm particularly interested, um, and it, it's always a sort of cheeky question uh, to, to a historian and about uh, a, a history book and historical analysis, but where does the book contribute in terms of thinking about the contemporary financialization of British society? I mean, particularly since 2008, you know, we, we've seen on the one hand um, a pretty disastrous kind of social political response um, to the country's dependence on the financial services sector. On the other hand, you know, we're kind of still living through, you know, at least every two or three months, but, you know, sometimes every week, um, evidence of the kind of financialization of, of British society and how we think about things like, you know, interest rates, budgets, mortgages, pensions, all this kind of stuff in, in ways that you know you're really clear in the book have been hugely shaped by the 1980s so what is the sort of uh, the book's lessons uh, for contemporary society today yeah I think I mean I think there are a number of different ways you could think about this I mean you mentioned kind of 2008 and the financial crash for example and I think one thing that the book helps us to understand or at least I hope it does is that 
understanding the power of financial institutions and financial markets that they have in our society, in our political system, um, in our economic system, means also understanding their power in our social and cultural lives as well. And that understanding how governments were able to deal with the financial crash in the way they did by really socialising risk and using vast amounts of taxpayers' money to bail out banks and things, not only relied on a kind of political willingness to do that, but a wider cultural acceptance that finance and financial institutions do have a role in our lives and that they are really powerful and that we are all tied up in them and that bits of our lives depend on their success. So I think some of what I'm interested in has been this normalization of the idea that we all have some kind of stake in the financial in financial markets one way or another. And this is partly why I'm interested in mass investment culture. So that's the most kind of explicit direct form. But ultimately, the story that you kind of get out of looking at this is whilst there's this moment in the 1980s where everyone um, like investing becomes a bit of a craze almost, the longer term outcome is actually that more and more people, they're not investing directly, but they are tying themselves in different ways to financial markets through their pensions, through their mortgages, through different kinds of um, insurance and all of those kind of things. So I'm really trying to understand how it is that we got to the situation that we did today. And then there are all these other echoes, the kind of language and um, stories and tropes that you see financial institutions in the 70s and 80s testing out as a way of like, is this how we kind of talk to people about finance and get people interested? Um, One of the major kind of emerging trends is banks talking about that they're the ones who are going to help democratize access to finance, that investing now is suddenly for everyone and we're going to help you do that. And if you, I don't know, if you're in London, sat on the tube, you can see all sorts of adverts for investing apps, which is like investing made easy. Investing's now for everyone. Um, anyone can make a bit of money on the market. I mean, you can think of crypto. We don't have to get into crypto, but it's it's those kind of things where it's actually the same, it's the same patterns and it's the same kind of selling points and it's the same kind of marketing. And it's I think that's really interesting that these kind of, relationships and cultural norms that were really embedded through the 1980s still kind of live with us and have these after effects today yeah i, I think you're really right that in 30 years time we, we might be expecting um you know you or you know sort of maybe one of your future phd students to be thinking in terms of of this period and the kind of app enabled almost acceleration and yet continuity of uh, financialization through, um, yeah, fairly kind of crazy <laughs> and <laughs> highly questionable investment opportunities. But that obviously is for uh, kind of future historians. In terms of your own work, uh, like I said, there's, you know, a huge amount of stuff in this book. There's, you know, sort of several other books that could be written, you know, just based on the agenda it's it's tried to set. So are you thinking of more work in this space um, or is there a kind of a different project um, that your work is going to be um, thinking through in the coming years? Yeah, there's actually, a, I guess, two kind of parallel things I'm interested in. So um, one is uh, hopefully maybe a project uh, coming up working with um, some colleagues at other universities that will be interested in more of the emotional side, uh, like emotional histories of finance and thinking about, you know, I've been talking a lot about people's anxieties about finance, but actually I was mostly looking at the financial institutions and 
um, financial marketing and financial advice, but actually what was that experience like for people and how did financial institutions set up those quite emotive relationships with people talking about, well, you should invest because you're investing in your children's future. That's actually quite a powerful um that's quite a powerful thing to be working with. So some, there's some stuff that I'd quite like to do more with the finance thing um, and investing. On the other side, uh, I've also got um, a project coming up, actually, which is a bit more concrete and um, set in motion, which is going to be do, uh, to do with self-employment and other types of ownership and particularly business ownership and the appeal of um, those messages about upward mobility as they kind of emerge more through the idea of the Alan Sugars of this world um, and thinking about, uh, yeah, some of that, some of that kind of neoliberal meritocratic promise as it emerges in different cultural forms and what people's experiences of that were like. Um, that's a bit of a roundabout way of saying it, but yeah, self-employment anyway, histories of self-employment and um, from the kind of seventies, through um, things like business franchising, actually, and the body shop and Avon and direct sales, stuff like that, something in there anyway. <laughs> and another book? Um, I'm sure maybe at some point. I'm still getting over the, um, I'm still getting over having done this one. <laughs> it's still in recovery. So maybe at some point, yeah. 